So chapter 3, we're going to pick up in verse 15, which says, Therefore, because of all the things that we've been talking about, the example of Christ and Paul and the focus of a life that was set on Christ himself and not our own personal works or righteousness and that pursuit of him. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind or mindset, this attitude so Paul is saying, this isn't just for apostles. This is for all believers. The things I'm sharing, even though he was sharing from his own experience, he isn't saying, hey, this is for, like, there's elite Christians and non-elite Christians. This is for everybody, this example and this mindset. Therefore, as many as are mature have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. He will teach you the things that I'm saying. If you're not sure about this. He'll speak to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule and let us be of the same mind. So Paul is saying here, this is the things that I'm talking about. They're not just, again, for special people. They're for all Christians. This is what mature Christianity looks like. So you can say whatever you want about Christianity, and people have all different types of idea about Christianity and what it should look like, right? Right now on Twitter or Instagram or the news, there's all types of people, blogs and YouTube videos that are saying what Christianity should look like. And what Paul says is, let's take all those ideas and let's compare them to what I've been talking about right here. Esteeming others better than yourself, not grumbling or complaining, Loving, being encouraging, having the humble mindset of Christ, giving up the things that we think are of worldly value to pursue him. The, the things that he's been laying out, he says, that's what mature Christianity looks like. And we should press into maturity. Now look, particularly for those of you who are here, um, you're high schoolers, you're growing in your relationship with the Lord a lot of you are right where you're supposed to be. There is not a problem with growing. There's, there is immature and mature Christianity. Just like everybody knows, as you look at Christians, that there's a difference between Christians and the way they live their lives. Sometimes a statement like that, people act like it's judgmental. It's not judgmental. Just like there's a difference between human beings and where they are in life, for example... I have a daughter that just graduated first grade, and I have a wife that I've been married to. There's a difference between their life, and there's a difference between things that they can do and things that you expect, right? Somebody who's 50 and somebody who doesn't have all their teeth have much different expectations because of maturity and immaturity. Now, a baby who has no teeth that can't eat solid food you don't hold that against them. It's just where they are in life. Does that make sense? Right? So look, a lot of you guys, you're here, you're growing in your walk with the Lord. Maybe you need to learn things. Maybe you're still getting things down. Maybe you feel like a lot of Christianity is new or like beyond you in some ways. That's cool, actually. Totally fine. Because it's where you are in life. Now, there's a problem if in 40 years, you're still in the same place. Does that make sense? Right. Now there's a problem, just like when you have a young child and they become older and you begin to see 
All right, they're develop mark, developmental marks they're not hitting. They should be speaking by now, but they're not speaking. They should be eating differently. They should be thinking differently. And you begin to worry, all right, now is there a problem? Is there a health issue? Is there something going on? Because the maturity is not showing up in this individual's life. That means there's a problem. And what Paul is saying here is, no matter where we are in our Christian life, he has the same call for us. Just like a baby and a 50-year-old are both human beings and they both have real life, a Christian who's a baby and a Christian who's been walking with Christ for a number of years are going to have a different type of Christian life. Do you follow that? Right. But he says, here's what the more mature Christian life looks like, what I've been talking about. Because there are some people who maybe they've walked with Christ for a long time, but they don't actually have a mature Christian life. Maybe they've known Jesus for a long time. Maybe they've gone to the same church for a long time, but they don't actually have a mature Christian life. Days lived is not the same thing as distance traveled. Just because I've gone to a church for a long time doesn't mean I've made much distance in my personal walk with Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying is, look, this that I'm laying out here character of Christ, who he is, we need to press forward into that. So wherever you are right now, particularly a lot of you youth, God is not looking down on you like, you should be a 50-year-old. That's not what he's like. He doesn't expect perfection from you, but he does want progress, just like I don't expect perfection of my daughters, but I want progress in their life. I want to see them growing. I want to see them being made more like Christ. A lot of us, actually, especially those of us, maybe you're a little older in high school, you walk with Jesus a bit, and you want to see his life in your life, and you find that you're still falling short places, and you get frustrated at some of those things. You know what's funny? God probably, not probably, God has actually more patience with you than you probably have with yourself. He's like, I know where you are. I'm not expecting perfection, but I want you to be growing. And if we're not growing, then that's where the problem is. Or if our thought of growth is off, right? if I think me being a mature Christian looks like something it shouldn't, then there's a problem. And what Paul wants to do is he wants to command them, to direct them, to bring their, their ideas and attitude back toward Jesus Christ. Therefore, as many as are mature, here's how you'll tell what a mature Christian looks like. They have this mind, this attitude, this type of life that I've been explaining. And if anybody thinks anything otherwise, God will reel it to them. He'll make it known. And to whatever degree we've attained, wherever you are in your walk with the Lord, whatever you do know, whatever he has taught you, right? Right now you might be like, I don't know. Am I a Calvinist or Arminian? Oh, my goodness, I don't know. How am I going to figure these things out that the smartest minds in human history have been working on for years and still disagree? I'm 14 and I don't have it down. Cool. You don't need to have that down. But you know what you probably should have down? Do all things without grumbling and complaining. You got that? Do you understand that one? Does that make sense in your mind? Well, what you've attained, what you do possess, you should, you should walk like that. The things you do understand, that you do have in your Christian life, you, sh you should be responsible of those things. 
what you have been given, you're responsible for now. And really, a lot of us have been given a lot in terms of our Christian life. And we should be responsible with what we have, what he's taught us, what he's given to us. We should walk by that same rule, this group. He wants everybody to have that. There's not one. Like I don't get one standard because I'm Pastor Mike and you get a different standard. Like, like okay, so because I'm a pastor, um, I have to live a really holy life. But because you're not, it doesn't really matter for you. Sometimes we think that. Like, oh, well, you. You know, if you do religious things, then you got to be special. But if you're a normal Christian, then it doesn't matter. No, no, no. We're all being conformed in the same image and likeness. We're all moving on the same path in holiness. We all have the same goal that we're shooting for in terms of Christ-likeness and this attitude being worked out in our lives. And we should have the same mind in, in going together for that. We should be looking for that together. Now, as he moves on in six in 17, he says this, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who walk as you have for us, from us or for us a pattern. For many walk of who I've told you often, and I now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So Paul, he, he brings this back now, and he says, Look, brethren, Follow my example. This is a pretty huge statement. Uh, he, he says, I'm an example of Christian life. That's, that's a mature Christian life. You're, he doesn't say, I am Jesus 100%. He says, I'm, a, I'm an example of what a mature Christian life looks like. Again, it's, not, it's, it's just normal. We would say that about a regular person, right? We would say, this person is an example of a hard worker. Does it mean they're a perfect worker? Does it mean they've never done anything wrong? This guy's an example of a good businessman. This is an example of a, right? We pick out things in life and we're saying, this person exemplifies most of the time the things that you want from this arena in life. And what Paul is saying is, follow my example. You have seen a pattern. And he, he, he doesn't say he's exclusive. Look, he says, and others. There are other people. You've seen people like Timothy or Paphroditus. You've seen people who have lived this type of Christian life out in front of you. Follow their example. What are we, what are we trying to follow? What examples are we trying to follow? Everybody is. We see things online and we try to curate our own posts or likes like those things. We see TikTok videos and we try to emulate those things. We see people and friends, and maybe we have their mannerisms or things we start to emulate. There's, there's all types of things we begin to follow and act like and try to live up to. And what this is saying is, Tim, Paul literally wants this church 
you remember what I was like with you. And you know other people like that. If you need a pattern, follow that. And particularly for people growing, they need a pattern. They need to be able to look at somebody and say, what's a godly man or woman look like? I hope you have those people in your life. Uh, if you're connected to a youth ministry, I would imagine a lot of your leaders, that's, that's the type of life they're living in front of you. That's the most powerful thing about ministry, not just youth ministry. Ministry in general is being an example. Peter would say to other pastors, the whole point of being a pastor is not to lord over the flock, but be an example of what a Christian is supposed to be like. You can be an example of an 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th grade Christian kid. Right? Like, my daughter could be an example of a obedient third grader. And that's what I would expect from her. I don't expect her to be an 11th grader. I don't expect her to do everything that an 11th grader could do. I don't expect her to get in a car and drive somewhere. Right? That's illegal, number one. Also, number two, it would be dangerous. What? Where she is developmentally, I don't have these, high, these expectations that are too high. And Christ is the same. What he's saying is, find those people Follow their example. Be connected with them. And you, we should be the type of Christians who can say this. I, that we could look at other Christians and say, be an, be an example. I want to be an example to you. You could see the pattern in my life of following Jesus. Right? If I took an unsaved kid, somebody who had never heard about Jesus ever in their life, and I just had them follow you around. Think about it. For the last month. They did everything you did. They saw all your texts. They watched your shows. They were involved in the things that you were involved in. Would you have been an example of Christian life to that individual? Or if I took them and put them with another unsaved kid, would it be almost exactly the same? That's it's important. You want to aim for mature Christian life? It's, it's going to look something like this. And Paul says, you, you have that from us. And here's why, here's why that's so important. Verse 18. For many walk of whom I have told you often, Paul's saying, I told you about this a lot, remember. And now I tell you even weeping. Paul, Paul wasn't angry about this. He was heartbroken about this. That they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. He says, hey, listen, here's why I'm telling you this, because there's a lot of people who will be a negative example to you, even in realms of people who claim Jesus. They are, in fact, enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. What they're showing as an example will work against the, the work of the cross of Jesus Christ. They are literally trying to change your mind about the cross of Jesus Christ. Make you think it's not important. It's not what it was. Something different happened there. Maybe that it's not even true. Make you doubt its efficiency or effectiveness for you and in you personally. Or literally just blaspheme it, fight against it. I mean, there was direct people in that day and age who 
would fight against him. And Paul never had a hard time calling them out. He would name them by name. Alexander the coppersmith, God's going to get that guy. Right? Like, if you, if you attack Paul, cool. If you attack Jesus, not cool. Right? Like, Paul was a dude at the lunch table. You can make fun of him, but you made fun of Jesus, his friend. Now there was a problem. Right? Paul would stand up for Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he would call people out. But what he's looking at is he's saying there were people who would who who saw our example who were part of this group and now they've been caught up and they're literally they've become enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. They're they're essentially worldly and not heavenly. They don't like for what the cross stands for and its effect on a human person's life. They don't want the message that Jesus had to die for our sins. Or like, God, the Father is a wicked person that he would allow his own son to die. Like, you'll have people say just direct stuff. Or you could talk about Jesus without talking about the cross. Or the Bible, it just has a lot of good stories. We don't even know how much of it is true. Jesus was a real guy. He was cool. But everything the Bible says about him wasn't totally true. There's all types of things out there. And what Paul is broken about in the end is that these people are led away from Jesus, right? One group of people is being conformed into the image and likeness of Jesus, and this other group of people is being led away from Jesus. And Paul is basically saying, look, you, you can't have both worlds. Right? There's a real Jesus Christ, and we're all going to meet him one day. And there's all different types of thoughts about him, but all those thoughts about him aren't real. Do you understand? Like, people can have all types of thoughts about me personally. But maybe they're true, maybe they're not. But there's a real me and a real story behind my life and who I am. Just like there is for you. And just like there is for Jesus Christ. The difference is, what I think about Jesus determines my eternity. What you think about me doesn't really matter. <laughs> but what you think about Jesus... That determines your eternity. And if people think, ah, he didn't do those miracles, well, one day you're going to stand before him. And you're going to have to try to explain why you told everybody what he did wasn't real. Does that make sense? (laughs) So Paul is saying, I'm looking at this group of people who are walking away from Jesus, and I'm weeping for them. I want them to come back, but I'm not going to lie and say you can have both. You can have the world and Jesus. You can have this message and the message of the cross. You've become an enemy of the cross of Christ, and that's why I'm weeping. He says, don't walk like that. Don't, Don't be like that. In every group, there was people who heard the truth, the truth about Jesus, and walked away from the truth about Jesus. And Paul was heartbroken over that. But just because he was weeping didn't mean he changed the line. There's a truth. And people were deciding where they were going to be on that side. Now, he says, the, the sad thing about those enemies of the cross of Christ in 19, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, 
Their glory is their shame, and they set their mind on earthly things. The whole kind of focus and push there is worldliness. Um, it's the, the side there that is against the cross of Christ. They live the type of life that works against God's ends. They're enemies of his cross. They fulfill their personal lusts. They just, that's what their belly is, right? Whatever their hunger is, not just physical, but in general. Whether it's literally physical or sexual or covetous, right? Money, greed, power, whatever it is. They just live for that lust to fill that lust. They glory in their shame. The things they should be ashamed of, they actually brag about. A lot of people in the world doing that. The things that they should be ashamed of, they actually just brag about. And their end is destruction. Their end is destruction. That there are going to be people that are, the Bible says, lost in the end. People in this crowd who can walk with God for all eternity in robes of white. And people who could never walk with God again. Lost to God the Father forever. Lost to Jesus Christ and his forgiveness. Lost to the life of the Holy Spirit. Lost in their eternity because of where they stand in relation to Jesus Christ. Their end is destruction, Paul says. Weeping. Their, their example that they've had, they've rejected. The message of the cross, they've rejected. And now they've, they've ended up on this other side. And listen, here's why. This is just so important. You can hear what I'm saying, and that's fine. Because you could also just classify me in a group of people who say those types of things. You can find any group of people that will claim to be Christians and also believe anything else. You can find that. If you want to go to a church that believes that they're Christians and doesn't believe anything in the Bible, you can find that church. If you want to go to a church and believe also that you can live any type of sexual life and experience, you can find that church. That is out there. If you want to go to a church that just makes you happy and never says anything convicting and never talks about sin, you can find that church. You can talk about Jesus with a group of people who don't actually plan on surrendering their life at all or acknowledging the truth of what he says about himself. You can find that. It is out there if you want it. But the problem is, it doesn't change the facts. And it doesn't change what Jesus says about himself. And Paul says, I'm heartbroken because that person's end is destruction. And all they do is, they just live for the world. That's what that life works out to. It doesn't end up being more like Jesus. You end up living for yourself, filling your own belly, and the end of it is destruction. But on the other, on the other side, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship, our, our life, our, our new spiritual life and society is from heaven. So this group of people in Philippi is famous as a Roman colony. They were, they were Roman proud. They were connected to Rome. So 
they were a colony. They weren't in Rome, but they set up Roman life and culture in Philippi. Does that make sense? Like here in the East Coast, probably from some of the same areas that you guys are, particularly in Philadelphia. We've been around for hundreds of years, right? I just say that because like on the West Coast, you know, they've been built more recently. But you have segments of people, say like Italians, that have been around in areas of Philadelphia for literally hundreds of years. And if you go to that area or you go to areas in New York or you go to areas in like Chinatown, right, you can go to a culture in Philadelphia that is expressed. It's a different culture. It comes from a different place, but it's expressed in Philadelphia. And there's something unique, right? You could learn about that Italian life and culture, and you could also get probably the best homemade pasta you've ever had in your life. Definitely better than anywhere in California. So my point is, right, there's, there is a new type, a different type of life and culture expressed in that place. And what Paul says is, you and I are supposed to be citizens of heaven. That means we take the culture of heaven and we express it where we are on earth. So Philadelphia, Webster, Ellicott City, wherever you guys are from, what's supposed to be expressed is not Philadelphia, but the life of heaven on earth. And if that is not the main thing that's expressed, then my Christianity is immature. Because when Jesus came to earth, he expressed the life of heaven, not just the Jewish life. In fact, he was constantly in conflict with the Jewish life, the Jewish culture, as they saw it. He expressed what pleased his father. And you and I are supposed to be citizens of heaven, which means you will not fit in on earth. Just get this. Get it in your head already. I think this is really important. If you want to be a Christian, particularly a mature Christian, your life will not express the same type of things that people in the world express. And if you get along with the world 100%, then there's a problem. There's a problem. Because you're supposed to be part of a different culture. Just like if I walked into a different culture and started doing whatever I wanted, I would probably offend them because I would do something that goes against their culture, right? There would be some, some interaction, something I said, something I did that, that would be wrong. Well, guess what? To the world, we do things that are wrong because we're expressing a different culture. I'm not here to fit in with the world. I am here to be living out the life of heaven on earth. I'm a citizen of heaven first, before America, before Philadelphia, before anything else. Christianity is unashamedly about heaven. I'm going to be in Philadelphia for a little. I'm going to be in heaven forever. Which one's more important? My salvation comes from heaven. It doesn't come from Philly. I was born in Philly. But I'm not living here forever. I'm, I'm going to live there forever. And that's what I am going to express for all eternity. And there, sh there should be something in us that longs for that and something that isn't comfortable here. There was a pastor named F.W. Borum. He was from England. 
um, and he, he served in a couple different places in the world, but towards the end of his life, he was in Australia. And a lot of people from England moved to Australia, set up homes there, and he said, when I got calls to go to somebody's bedside, they were dying. He said, I always knew, if it was an Englishman, that I would be at the bedside of somebody who felt like a stranger. He said, I, I knew that when I got there, they would be thinking of their home, their original home. Somebody who was a pilgrim. They were a citizen really of a different place. Even though they moved there, might have lived their life there. When they were dying, they were thinking of the green hills they came from in another place. He said, somebody that felt lonely or distant. And you and I, there's going to be times where you feel lonely. There's going to be times where you feel isolated. There's going to be times where you feel like a stranger, where you're distant, where you don't fit in. You know what that means? That what Jesus says about you is true. That you're a stranger and a pilgrim. That this isn't your home and you're headed home. That your citizenship is a part of a different place. But it's nice that you get to live that out with other people who are also citizens of a different place. It's a blessing to have that together. And Paul's saying, you, you guys should have that same mind. That's mature Christian life. If you think you're all citizens of here and you're really all citizens of heaven, then you're immature Christians. You need to grow in your maturity and understand what that means and begin to embrace it. Because Christ, who is our Savior, when he appears, he's going to transform our lowly body. They may be conformed to his glorious body. Your Bible might say vile body, according to the power by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Jesus Christ is going to change us. Now again, you thinking about Jesus Christ changing your body to something new might not be very important to you right now because you're all young and healthy and full of energy and life. The older you get, the more you are going to appreciate this. Uh, right now, you know, most of you are testing out what you can possibly do and you think the, the possibilities of your body and what it can do in terms of jumping and running and energy, they're all still ahead of you. Well, there comes a point in your life where they are behind you. And you start looking at what you used to be able to do. Um, I was playing basketball. Uh, when I was 20. I was at another church. I was interning. And I played basketball all the time uh, in this area in Sacramento. And there was a guy there who also played. He was actually one of the better players in the city of Sacramento for a number of years. And uh, he had blown out his ACL and his meniscus in his knee. But he was still a good player. You could tell, like, this guy used to be really good. And uh, while I was there, I was playing in men's league, and I also blew out my ACL and my meniscus. And I had played basketball with this guy a number of times. And uh, after I had done that, he came and saw me, and he put his hand on my shoulder, and he was like, you're going to remember what you used to do. You're not going to be doing that anymore, man. He was like, welcome to the club. Welcome to the club, you know. He, he had that, he, he, he had lived on a certain level until his injury, right? And now he was looking back. Even though he was still very good, he was looking back because he knew what he used to be able to do, right? And what the Bible says is our hope in this life is not that we have health and we're perfectly happy forever here. It's that we're going to have a new body like Jesus's body that's immortal and that your mind and your heart and your physical frame are going to be in harmony with one another. And they'll be able to work together 
and you're going to have a life and a power that feels, as you start running into eternity, better than the last day of school of summer, right? You're just going to be ready to press it, and you won't have to worry. So wonderful things there to think about. But the idea is the life that we're looking for is found in him. And it's secured, notice, by his power. The reason I can hope in that is because Jesus is able to subdue everything to himself. He's the one who's in control of everything. I know I will receive that resurrected body because he already did it. And he has the power to do it whenever he wants. It's not up to me. It's up to him. And he's already proven that he can do that. And we could think about that a lot more, but we don't have time. So if you want to talk about what our resurrected body will be like, we can do that uh, over burrito bowls or something. Okay, So you'll have to think about that more on your own. i got to finish the section. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord. He's saying, look, because of all these things, stand fast together. You should want these things together. You should pray for these things together. You should live these things out together. He loves these individuals. He wants them to move forward in him. And he's going to talk to specific ones. Look at verse 2. I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche. Maybe some of you are thinking about, you know, the, your kids' names one day and you we want some new girl names. Here you go. Euodia and Syntyche. Uh, I don't know how you say Syntyche, right? I'm just making that up. Somebody, you can, somebody who knows can say it better sometimes. But there's no test on it. Don't be worried. To be of the same mind in the Lord, and I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. One of the things, I think this is important, one of the things that uh, Paphroditus must have done when Paul said, how are things going to the church? He said, well, you know, you know, like a little bit of a battle going on there. And Paul loves these individuals. He's willing to talk to them directly and to say, look, the two of you, live out life together. So whether it's not just ladies, ladies, gentlemen, he includes everybody else there. He says, all my fellow workers. He says, these people, they had served the Lord together. They had helped the, in this work with Clement and others. He said, we all need to be on the same mind in this direction. We all need to be moving in this direction together. They're... they're there's always going to be issues. When a bunch of sinful people get together and try to do a project, they will sin against one another and with one another. And there needs to be love and forgiveness and moving forward. That's not like, people act like that's horrible or something. I guess you've never heard of a marriage or friendship either. Right? Like, yeah, no. Every person in the world is sinful, and those people commit to each other on all different types of levels, and it's still a blessing, right? The, the idea is the commitment gives space for some sin so that we're going to remain faithful to one another because we're a part of this thing together. And I think it's interesting. Paul's willing to, like, call these people out by name, you know? I, and I say that just because there's always scenarios in life where, you know, we want to say something to somebody or you feel like somebody needs to be corrected. We're like, oh, I don't want them to mention my name. Well, apparently Paul wasn't very scared of that, and neither was Epaphroditus, because he's the one who told it. They, they would have known, and he was going back with this letter. Right? As believers, we need to love each other directly and openly and sincerely. If you can't stand up for what you're saying to somebody, then you probably 
shouldn't say it. And that's part of mature Christian life and what he's doing here. He directly addresses these ladies and asks them to move forward, right? They're all marked down, all these individuals, these women who are also part of everybody laboring together in the gospel, these men as well, whose names are written in the book of life. We're all part of this team. We're all going to be in heaven together. So when you're in heaven together and everything's perfect, think about what you want your life to have been in relation to other people, right? That kid who's giving you a hard time in your class, why don't you pray for them? And even though they've been giving you a hard time in class, one day when they stand in heaven, they're going to look and be like, oh, wait, I was giving you a hard time and you were praying for me. Thanks, right? It's all going to work out because the truth is going to come out either way. It's all going to work out. Jesus is going to take care of it. Now, four, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. We've seen this kind of theme here. He wants them to be rejoicing in the Lord, not simply as a guideline, but as an internal reality. It's not an external condition with us. He, he, he is also rejoicing in them, and it's in the Lord. Okay, not in your, It's not in your circumstance, it's in the Lord. The idea being, if I'm driving here and I get a flat tire, I don't have to be like, Lord, thank you for flat tires. I love flat tires, especially in the rain or the heat. I'm not rejoicing in the condition. I'm rejoicing because I can say, Lord, thank you that you love me, even though I'm frustrated about my flat tire right now. Right? Thank you there's forgiveness. Thank you that... I have the provision to take care of it, right? There, I, can, I can think about the Lord with me in that scenario and be thankful for him. Because whatever scenario I'm in, without him, it's a lot worse, right? If you're a Christian and you get cancer or you're an atheist and you get cancer, it's not like it's better not having God. No, I can rejoice in the Lord. Lord, thank you that even though I have this thing that I never thought or wanted that you are going to be with me that you're going to provide right so sometimes it doesn't seem like very much you know we even pray like lord be with this person but the reality is it is what makes all the difference when jesus was leaving he gave a promise to his disciples and it was lo i will be with you always even until the end of the age so it makes a difference in the end so I can rejoice in the Lord always because he never leaves. He's with me in this scenario, however difficult or hard it could be. That's what Christians rejoice in because they have the Lord and nobody can take him from us. Right? When Paul got thrown in a jail cell alone, if he just worshipped idols of wood or, or silver, they could have taken his idols away and he wouldn't be able to worship. But you can't take Jesus away can't take Jesus away from him. He's always with him. Every moment. We can rejoice in the Lord and let your gentleness or moderation be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. The idea being, um, and I think this is very unique, the ideas of that word gentleness or moderation is sweet reasonableness. It's actually very interesting. Some people think that 
Paul literally coined the phrase. It was a unique Greek word. Like he might have made the word up. Like he kind of mixed mixed words together. You know, like ginormous. So we coin a phrase. We mix words together to, to give kind of an impression about something. Moderation is kind of good. The idea is there's a there's a balanced reasonableness and contentment to the way we deal with things, right? Now some of us we have we're we're a little more placid people, right? Others we're a little more stormy people, right? So some of us a sweet reasonable moderation is a little bit more difficult than others. But what he says is that moderation should be made known to who? Read that verse. To men. So take your stormy heart and you pour it out to God. And you let your moderation be made known to men. You show your moderation to men. But to God, you turn everything. You could turn it loose on God. He already knows anyway. Like if you're frustrated and angry and you're trying to hold it together with God, it's not like he's faked out. Right? So I could take my heart, my whole heart, and I could pour it out to him anyway, which is what he encourages here in the next verse. So you be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. These are, these are familiar verses. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The idea being... I should take everything in prayer to him. Worry is a great robber, thief of joy and peace. The word there means to be worried, to be drawn in different directions or to be strangled. Right? Those are both horrible things. I don't like turtlenecks because I feel like they're right, like, eh. like a weak person strangling me all day. <laughs> don't like that. I don't like that feeling something around my neck. And... Uh, you know, I don't like obviously being pulled in different directions. Sometimes people will still literally use that phrase in English. I feel like I'm being pulled in different directions. People, so many different things going on. You can't do anything well. You're letting things drop that shouldn't be dropped, or you're literally being torn. That's the idea there. Jesus commands us not to worry, and he also understands that we won't be able to control our worry all the time, so he tells us what to do with it. What he says is, so when you worry, this is the important thing, because sometimes we're just like, well, I can't control my worry. I can't help worrying. Okay, but you can do this. This is what he says then. You can take everything to him in prayer. You can thank him for things. You could bring your supplications and your requests to him. And you're like, I do pray. Okay, but do you pray as much as you worry? Probably not. You're like, I prayed once for five minutes, and then I worried for 400 hours. Yeah, well, guess what? I, get, I bet you're going to be worried still at the end of the day. Because what we're supposed to do is, and particularly, we, people get worried. Oh, it's a control issue a lot. Worry comes from a lot of different angles. I can't touch them all, but we're trying to control things, and they don't work, and then we start getting freaked out, or we try to make people act the way we want them to, or, or we want circumstances to work out a certain way, so we're trying to force that to happen, and then it doesn't happen. And whenever our control starts melting down, we start freaking out and worrying about things, when really, God's supposed to be in control anyway. And I take the scenarios, and I give them to him. And I trust him to take care of them. And then I'm not worried. I love the example. I think of this all the time of Mary, the mother of Jesus, 
You guys know the story. Jesus at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. The wedding, they run out of wine. They don't know what to do. Mary comes up to Jesus and she says, look, we got a problem. They ran out of wine. Jesus says, woman, what do you want me to do? And you're like, that doesn't seem like the correct answer to, are we having the same conversation? Right? Like those, doesn't seem like those things really mix. And then Mary's response is to look at the servants who are there and say, whatever he tells you to do, do it and walks away. Now, if we watch that conversation happen, we would just be confused, right? Big problem. There's this big problem. What do you want me to do? Do whatever he tells you to do and walks away. We'd be like, those people have issues. What is the issue they have there? They don't really like each other. It would be weird, right, if we saw that happen. But the point is this. Mary didn't need to control Jesus. She knew that. Not, not just because whatever, who knows how much she knew about him because she fully believed he was the son of God yet or his power. Who knows? But she had enough experience with Jesus to know this. When I come to my son Jesus and I bring a problem to him and put it into his hands, I don't have to tell him what to do. I just let him take care of it. So I can turn to the servants and I can just say, whatever he tells you to do, you do it. Why know why? Because I gave him the problem. You know what we don't do? That. When we pray about our worry, we're like, God, I'm really worried. I have this great solution to my worry, which is you providing me a million dollars and a new home and family. Right? Like, that's, that's not how it works. When I'm worrying, I come to him and I say, here's my problem. Put it in your hands. You take care of it. And I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to let it become your worry. And Jesus says, don't worry about the things that Gentiles worry about. Your clothes, food you have to eat. Don't even worry about death. I got a father's house. It's cool. He's going to take care of it. There's a dwelling place for you there. If it wasn't like that, I would have told you. Here's what you need to worry about. Worry about my kingdom and my righteousness. That's what you should worry about. You just come to me. You keep me the focus. Take all the things you have. Don't be anxious about anything. The answer to your anxiety is surrender to Jesus. Give it up. Stop being Whatever you're stressed about, stop being stressed about it. Give it to Jesus. Let him take care about it. And then start worrying about something else, like what does it mean to be conformed in the image and likeness of Jesus Christ and serve him? Because that's really what you're supposed to be worried about anyway. That's what the whole thing's about. And that's what mature Christian life begins to look like. And the people who aren't worried are not people who have everything under control. They are the people who have everything surrendered to Jesus and know he has everything under control. Those are the people who aren't worried. That's why you never read in the Bible, and then Jesus freaked out. <laughs> right? Because his father always had it under control. I don't go anywhere unless my father tells me to go there. I don't do it unless my father tells me to do it. I don't say it unless my father tells me to say it. I just do what he tells me to do. And it's not my hour. And then when his hour had come, he was ready for it. We need to bring all those things to him. That's what mature Christian life looks like. 
And when we do that, then notice the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind through Christ Jesus. That guard means to literally garrison, like set uh, literally military guards around. God's peace will guide your heart and guard your heart and your mind. When I've done that, when I've taken those things, I've put them before him, I leave them in his hands. Then, like Mary, mother of Jesus, you can walk away. It's taken care of, right? Somebody would have sat down at the table with her. Okay, what happened? I told Jesus. What did he do? I don't know, right? What do you mean you don't know? I just told the people to do whatever he says. And then, right, we know the story is crazy. Jesus, like, filled out with water. And they're like, what, what? He's like, okay, go serve it to him. Then they're like, what? And then they do it, and they're like, what? Right? It just gets crazier. What is happening here? Remarkable. Remarkable. And he is still the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you wonder why you don't have more peace, it's not because you can't control or change circumstances. It's because you haven't really laid things into Jesus' hands and left them there. And if you find yourself worrying again, then you need to pray again and bring it back to him and put it there again and say, God, you got this. You know my family. You put me there. You got this. You know my physical weakness. You made me. I am as healthy as you will create me to be. You got this. You know my lack, my weaknesses, my fears. You got this. I'm going to bring them to you. You answer it in the way you see fit. Do we trust Jesus enough to do that? Because the reality is sometimes we don't, right? We don't. And then you know what happens? We walk around worried our minds and our hearts, scared about every possibility. And half of them don't even come true. When really, if we just trust him, he'd probably blow our minds. We'd be like, what? How's this happening? Because he's got it. So take your stormy heart and give it to Jesus. Let your moderation be known to men. Progress is what he's looking for in your life, not perfection. Leave those things that would inhibit you into his hands, and he'll take care of them. So let's stand. Let's pray. Let's ask God to help us do that. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for your word. Lord, you command us not to be anxious. So give what you command, Lord, a heart of trust and prayer and supplication and thanksgiving in you. And let us know the blessing of joy and peace guiding our hearts, guarding our hearts, guiding our minds, guarding our minds. Allow us to walk with that inner joy, a fountain flowing from inside, not related to the circumstances outside of us. And Lord, allow us to be in a world that's desperately in need of it. Examples of the pattern of life that you want set forth. So fill us with your spirit, Lord. We need that for any of this to be true. And thank you again for the provision you give to us, both in your word and physically, even as we go to eat.
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.